When I was in college, I was asked to come speak at a Disciple Now event here in Austin. And I was asked to speak on the subject of purity uh, to high school and junior high students. Um, I didn't have any business talking about the subject at that age probably. I probably needed to hear a few messages myself. Nonetheless, there were about 50 students and after the evening went on and we got to eat pizza until we were stuffed and roller skate and play dodgeball and uh, play tag throughout the building. At a, around midnight, they let me know it's time for you to do your talk on sexual purity to these 50 students. So we went up into the youth room and I walked in and on the wall in paper letters about six foot high was just the word S-E-X. No comment, no scripture, not it is good, not it is bad, just the word, apparently letting everyone know what the subject was going to be this midnight. As I began my talk, there was at least uh, one couple that I had to ask to get away from one another because they had not heard this message yet. It was very clear. There were very young children looking at me, eyes wide open, having no idea where this was going, and there were a good number of adults who were really glad I was doing this talk and not them. I think this moment for me has come to represent how so many, even in the Christian world, sadly handle this subject. We want to bring someone in, let's talk about it for a minute after we're done playing all the games, and then let's just please move on with life. It's a little bit too awkward. And this is terribly sad. So today I want us to look at Proverbs 5 and get a good, godly understanding of sexuality and how the book of Proverbs helps us, how it gives us wisdom. If you're looking for a title, today's sermon would be Wisdom and Grace for Adultery. Wisdom and Grace for Adultery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we have read about already this morning that we have sung about. And we come now, Father, to open up this book of wisdom that we might have wisdom about this. Father, would you be with us here no matter where we have gone, what sins we have committed, help us to be honest with ourselves. Give us clarity about ourselves. Give us clarity about you. Father, if there are things that we need to repent from by the ministry of your word and your Holy Spirit, empower us to repent. If there are things that we need to be encouraged in, to persevere, to continue, to fight again, help us to persevere. And all things, Father, by your spirit today, might we have faith. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are, in totality, really four things that we're going to say today toward, through, and around Proverbs. Number one, we're going to see the goodness of sexuality in God's creation of man and woman. Really, just a fly-by overview of Genesis 1. one. Number two, we'll see God's purpose for sexuality in His people we're going to stop and see that in the book of Leviticus on the way to Proverbs. Then we're going to see how wisdom helps us live the goodness and the purpose of sexuality. And we'll see that in Proverbs. And finally, we'll see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and how He relates to Genesis, to Leviticus, and to Proverbs. In short, is it good? Number two... Why does it matter so much? Number three, what's wisdom for living? Number four, what has Christ to do with this? First, God created man, woman, and sexuality for His glory. We're going to say this really short and in passing in a sense, but this is not an accident. 
Sexuality is not an accident. It, de- it did not evolve. God created it. If there was nothing else that you think about sexuality after the day, think this, that it was God's idea before it was ever our desire. Four things really quickly that we can get from the book of Genesis. Number one, sexuality is part of the image and likeness of God. God made man and woman in his image and likeness, and the sexual union between man and woman is part of the image and likeness of God. It is a way that we display and live God's likeness to one another. It's not even just an allowance. It's not something just for us. It's something that's in some intrinsic way like him. Number two, sexuality is God's means for procreation. The first mention of this union between man and woman is the commission for man to multiply and fill the earth at the end of Genesis chapter 1. Number three, sexuality is an expression of covenant love between man and woman. Sexuality is an expression of covenant love between man and woman, or you would say between husband and wife. An exclusive expression of devotion, love, and commitment between a husband and wife. And number four, sexuality was created to be pleasurable. It is not an accident. It is not dirty. It is not wrong that it is pleasurable. It was created to be so. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of the Marriage, talks about it this way. He says, the Bible contains great love poetry that celebrates sexual passion and pleasure. If anyone says that sex is bad or that it is dirty itself, we have the entire Bible to contradict him. God not only allows sex within marriage, but he strongly commands it in multiple passages, including passages like 1 Corinthians 7, which we'll reference this morning. So God created man and woman and sexuality for his glory. We see that through his creation of man and woman in his image. So that's Main point one, really quickly. We need to mention this because the book of Proverbs assumes this. The book of Proverbs does not just float out into the middle of nowhere and start having conversations about sexuality. It assumes God is creator, that he's put this union between husband and wife, that it's good, that it's a means for procreation. So, big point number two. God commands his people to sexual purity in order to display his holiness among the nations. And you could put in parentheses, same for the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. God commands his people to sexual purity in order to display his holiness among the nations. Why does God, to put it in a catechism, why does God command his people to live sexually pure in order to display his holiness among the nations? Go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, just look there as a quick reminder for us before we go to the book of Leviticus. Now, at this point in the Bible, God has chosen a people for himself. He's chosen Israel. He chose Abraham. And he's been keeping his covenant with Abraham's descendants who found themselves in captivity in Babylon. God redeemed them out of Babylon through Moses' powerful ministry, walked them through the Red Sea, saved them from their enemies. And now on that side of choosing Israel and on that side of saving and redeeming Israel, God gives Israel the law, the commands for how to live as his people, having been already chosen and saved. The first place that he does this in law is in Exodus chapter 20, and we see the Ten Commandments. Look at commandment number seven. It's very short in Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This is like legal precedent for everything in God's commands, the Ten Commandments. You could summarize all of the law through what God is asking the people to do in the Ten Commandments. Part of that is, in general, do not commit adultery. God chose them in Abraham. God saved them through Moses. And now God is commanding them 
not to commit adultery. Now why? We need to make sense of why this law matters so much to God and his people and to us. Look in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. We'll see the command repeated again and we'll see exactly how serious God is about this command. How serious God is about sexual purity and faithfulness among his people. Chapter 20, verse 10, within a long section of all kinds of very detailed graphic commandments about sexuality, for our purposes, just look at chapter 20, verse 10, very simple. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, Leviticus is adding on, it's an expansion, a continuation of those Ten Commandments. And we've just seen now here in Leviticus 20.10 that the penalty for breaking that commandment among God's people is death. The punishment of the adulterer and the adulteress is that they shall be put to death. This is a grave sin among God's people. If you go back to the beginning of Leviticus 1 through 6, there are many sins that you do many different sacrifices for and offerings for. If you forget to make a sacrifice, you bring a pigeon. If you sin in this way towards your neighbor, you bring this lamb. But if you commit adultery, you shall surely be put to death. Why does it matter so much? Look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 22 to 23. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 22 to 23. You shall surely therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you, the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and even to Moses, the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out, which it would eventually do. And you shall not walk in the customs, listen to what matters so much to God, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they, the Canaanites and all of those nations, they did all these things and therefore I detested them. This is an explanation for the purpose of the law. Why? Why, God, does this matter so much to you and your people? And here is the answer. Because adultery is not what God is like. God's law, all of God's law to his people could be summarized back in chapter 19, verse 2. You, Israel, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And when I rescued you from Egypt, the goal all along was to bring you into the land of Canaan so that there you, obeying my commands and being holy like I am holy, will display what I am like to the whole world. You will be my new actual image and likeness on the earth. You are my people. I'm your God. The covenant terms, my saving you terms, were that you would be holy like I'm holy. So don't, don't go into the promised land and do what they do. Because I'm not like that. It's not what I'm like. To take on the name of God and live in sexual immorality outside of marriage is to make yourself into an idol of worship to a foreign God. To take on the name of God and live in sexual immorality, to live in sexual adultery, to live in pornography, to live in any sexual morality, to entertain and live and host and welcome and feed thoughts in your mind is to make yourself into an idol of worship to a foreign God because God is not an adulterer. He is a faithful, covenant-keeping husband in those terms. And God is saying to Israel, the law in Leviticus is there to guide you to live like I ordered the world back in Genesis. The order of man and woman and marriage and sexuality and my image and, and likeness. So just think, I mean, we, 
the, the people of Israel are, are getting Genesis and Leviticus really about the same time in history. They're coming out of Egypt, which you don't have to do a lot of research very long to figure out that, well, they weren't like Israel when it comes to sexuality. They weren't like God in their understanding of sexuality. And here God is saying, for you, I want you to know that I've created sexuality. I created it between husband and wife. I created it as good to fill the earth and as part of my image and likeness on the earth. Just, just like Pharaoh had all of his images and likenesses all over his land, you're my image and likeness. And one of the ways you portray my image and likeness is in covenant faithfulness between man and wife in marriage sexually. They're supposed to be holy because their God is holy. Now, this comes to full display later when Israel as a nation becomes unfaithful to God. When Israel as a nation becomes unfaithful to God, Israel has begun later on after they get into the land, they begin worshiping other gods. Not only are they unfaithfully sexually in their marriages between husband and wife, they are unfaithful to God himself. This is why Israel is taken out of Israel into Babylon to suffer God's discipline because they had begun to give their money and their singing and their altars to fake gods, gods that don't exist, and begin to say, that's our God, that's our creator. He's the one who's going to be there for us. When Israel forsook God, how did God explain their unfaithfulness to him? Through the prophets, there are multiple places. We'll just read a couple. One of them is Isaiah chapter 9, which same book that Cal read from this morning. When God looks down at his people Israel who had forsaken him for other gods, what did God say to them? Hosea chapter 9 verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. You've hired yourself out to other gods. You sold your worship like a prostitute. Ezekiel chapter 23, he says in verse 29, your lewdness and your whoring have brought this, have brought Babylon and your exile upon you because you played the whore with nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You were an unfaithful wife. You were an unfaithful spouse. And God's character is displayed in that he has a covenant with his people and like Christ and his bride, he is the faithful covenant keeper. All our hopes and dreams, all the hopes for Israel was that God was covenant keeping, promise keeping God because of their unfaithfulness. It's their only hope. In essence, God is saying to Israel, you cheated on me. I saved you. We wed. We made vows and you left me. I gave you my love and my devotion and my intimacy and myself and, and you went after someone else, a false god. You see, that is why adultery is so terrible and worthy of death in God's eyes. It's absolutely contrary to who he is as a faithful covenant keeper and it's contrary to his relationship with his people. They're supposed to be holy because he is holy. And God never once abandoned his people or failed in his covenant-keeping love. Not one promise that God ever made failed to come true. But when God's people commit adultery and sin against the husband-wife relationship that God instituted in Genesis, well, that lies about God. It says something else about God to the nations who are looking in. So with these two things in mind, how do we begin to understand Proverbs? With these two things in mind, how do we understand Proverbs? We saw in Genesis, God created sex and it's good. We saw in Leviticus, God commands sexual purity in his people to display his holiness. Now, before we get to Proverbs, let me just say really quickly that sexual purity for God's people to today is a display of God's holiness just like it was for Israel. We look strange. If you're a Christian believing and trusting in Christ, I'm talking about we, look strange to the world. 
our sexual ethic, one man, one woman, marital union, covenanted together for life, tells the world, our God is different. God is different. In a world awash with confusion and rebellion when it comes to sexuality, God-like singleness and God-like marriages tell the world what God is like. Those who are single, those who are married alike can all protect the covenant of marriage through their sexuality, thus showing what God's faithful covenant keeping is like. Does that mean that sometimes people who are not Christians won't live marriages in some similar fashion? No, but when the church of Jesus Christ, the people of the Son of God, when we collectively say and live, this is a covenant between man and woman, this is how God has designed the world in order to show himself in creation, it says something to a watching world. It's very much part of our witness today, just like it was for Israel and Canaan. So what do we do with Proverbs? Sex is good in Genesis. God has commanded it for purity to display His holiness in Leviticus. What do we do with Proverbs? I don't think I've emphasized this enough this summer as we have walked through Proverbs. We already have creation design in Genesis. We already have the law in Leviticus. Proverbs is not trying to be Genesis. It's not trying to be like Leviticus 2.0. We have theology and design in Genesis. We have the law in Leviticus. Proverbs gives us wisdom. Proverbs gives us understanding. The law is very clear and explicit. But how do I do that? How do I keep that? We need understanding. We need to understand the world the way God understands the world. We need parents helping children understand this is how the world works out there. Proverbs is not the law, it's wisdom about walking in God's law. So, for example, in our chapter, the book of Proverbs already assumes every Israelite already knows the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Proverbs 5, then, is like a father talking to his son. It is a father talking to his son, saying, okay, okay, son, let, let me... Let me tell you how the world works out there. Let's talk. Let's explain. Let's understand what you're going to face when it comes to the opportunity to keep or break the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. And parents, disciple makers, This is our motivation, partly, for talking to your children and talking to new Christians about sex and marriage and faith and love and death and everything. Like Proverbs says at the very beginning, get insight, get understanding. We we don't just need rules and laws, we need understanding. Anyone can easily post 10 rules on the refrigerator in your house. Wisdom comes by fathers taking their sons out for burgers and saying, son, let's talk about how this works. What are the blessings? What are the dangers? What are you going to experience? What are you going to feel? Let me tell you about what it was like when I was your age. Let me tell you about the ways that I messed up and maybe you can learn from those things. Let me tell you about your aunt. Let me tell you about your grandfather. Let me tell you about some other passages in Scripture and show you how this actually works. Get to a place of understanding beyond just, well, here it is, don't do it. That's wisdom, helping, understand. This is the call of wisdom through the whole book of Proverbs. You see it begin this way in chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the youth. Sorry, young people, in that couplet, yes, it means youth is equal to simple. But to those who are just thinking simply, who who aren't pondering life, to to, to youth who, who haven't begun to really yet ponder how a decision can lead to implication, one, two, three, four, five in your whole life. That's what wisdom is there to do, to give you foresight and insight and understanding. 
So what's the understanding? What's the wisdom for adultery? The penalty is death. That's the law. But dad, what do I need to know? I mean, how does this work? Glad you asked, son. Chapter 5 in the book of Proverbs. Three things you need to know about adultery. Three things you need to know about adultery in Proverbs chapter 5. Number one, the adulteress tastes like honey at first. The adulteress tastes like honey at first. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 3, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Did you catch that? So on the adulterer, the, the forbidden lover, man or woman, she's not going to have a big sign over her, has says, over her head that says, if you kiss me, you're going to die. And her lips are going to drip with honey. I don't think that's necessarily describing her flavor of lipstick. It's saying, son, adultery looks fun. It smells sweet. It looks fulfilling and affirming to you. Makes you feel big and strong and warms your self-pride and it feels wonderful. And when she talks, son, when she opens her mouth, you're, you're going to go into a trance. Her speech is smoother than oil. Son, you're going to feel things. You're going to think things that you can't even, can't even imagine right now. But listen, son, you need to understand. Listen, daughter, let me give you some insight. That honey, it's laced with poison. That honey will kill you. It's like a piece of sweet and sour candy, sweet at first, and then you're going to look weird in the face. Look what he says in verse 4. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death, literally in the law. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She's not thinking about life, son, but we're going to. Her ways wander and she doesn't even know it. See, the wisdom for keeping the law is having insight in the world. Look, son, she's not sitting around thinking about life. The adulterer is not considering where she's going the adulterer is not pondering his path in life, but that's not us. Let's think about it, son. Listen, it's like honey at first, but then it's wormwood. So when you see honey, don't, don't stop thinking. It's smoother than oil at first, her words, but don't, don't listen to those first words. Understand that it becomes smooth like a blade later. This is a father talking a son through what you're going to experience and where it leads. An example of a mother talking to a daughter about what it's going to be like when there's temptation to break the seventh commandment and to be holy as God is holy. Number two, you can listen now, son, or you can regret it later. Chapter 5, verse 7, listen now or regret it later. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep her way, your way, far from her. And do not go near the door of her house. Son, don't, don't even go near there. That's, that's wisdom. The law says don't commit adultery. Wisdom says don't even go close. I remember my first semester of seminary. I was at Southwestern in Fort Worth. And Colette and I were engaged. And she was finishing college at, uh, at Belton. At uh, Mary Harden Baylor. From time to time, I would meet her in Waco or come down and visit her in Belton. And on the way back to Fort Worth, I can remember where it is to this day, there's a, a men's club just off the exit as you're coming into Fort Worth. And as a 25 or so year old man engaged and driving back and forth, how many, many nights I just felt the pool even if it was just curiosity, even if it was just frustration or anger, 
And wisdom doesn't say just don't do that. Wisdom says five miles back, you need to turn a sermon on. You might want to take a different road. You might want to get in the left lane. You might want to get yourself behind a semi-truck and just keep your head straight, son. Don't, don't ever even take the exit. Keep your way far from her. That's wisdom. This is part of the biblical wisdom for things like filters on your phones and your computers. It keeps us from going down paths. It, it helps us. Blocking phone numbers on our phone, giving someone else the password to your devices, helping your children by blocking these roads. Now, is that the totality of what it means to be mature and be faithful to kind of uh, create, you know, blocks in front of sin? No, no, definitely not. But this is what Jesus said when it came to adultery. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. So if you need to cut something off, cut it off. The law says, do not commit adultery. Wisdom says, don't even go near that door. You see the difference? And what's the motivation? Chapter 5, verse 9 through 14. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. They'll just keep taking and taking and taking. Lest strangers take their fill of all your strength. They get your youth from you, son. Don't give them your youth. And your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, be thinking about the end of your life, son. You're going to groan when your flesh and your body are consumed. You've spent your life on what? And you'll say, oh, how I hated discipline. And my heart despised reproof. Oh, I didn't listen. Now I regret it. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembly, in the assembled congregation. Such a common theme in wisdom. Pay attention now in order to keep from suffering later. This is how the whole book of Proverbs begins. Get wisdom and insight. And part of being a child or being a youth is that you do not automatically ponder your future. When you've got some free time on Saturday with your kids, have any of them recently said, Dad, can we go to McDonald's and talk about life? Can we go talk about our, our future and what it means to be married and how to find a wife? And No. No. That's not what they're asking for. Nor should they. They're youth, they're children. That's the whole point of Proverbs is you've got a son saying, son, you're not thinking this way yet, but I'm going to help you think this way. You're not seeing this way yet, daughter, but I want to help you think this way. I want to help you know what's going on in the world. And see how the father's conversation with the son is, son, don't just look right here. Look way down the road and avoid groaning the loss of your life. Proverbs 6.23 says it like this. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who destroys it himself, he will get wounds and dishonor. And in his disgrace, disgrace, it will not be wiped away. You can have that one relationship now. You can have that one taste of honey now, but it's going to affect all your relationships in the end. When you've taken a vow before God and you break that trust, who will be able to trust you? When you tell someone I love you, will they be able to believe you, son? When you say that I'll be there, will you have honor among the people around you who heard you make other, even greater vows? Adultery isn't just a sexual mistake, son. It's a breaking of covenant that can bring your life to ruin. Number three, go home to your wife. Chapter 5, verse 15 through 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own wells. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water and streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a, a graceful doe. 
beautiful, gentle, lovely. Verse 19, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? In short, son, go home to your wife. Now, how do we apply this? I remember hearing about one pastor telling his wife that he needed to be intimate on a certain regular basis, with regularity, to keep himself from viewing pornography and having an affair. Something like this might have been his biblical grounds. Well, go to your spouse. Two thoughts about that, that kind of application of this passage. One is it's not entirely unbiblical. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, Paul tells Christians, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So yes, there is an aspect of deflecting satanic temptation in a husband and wife enjoying one another. So spouses ought to consider the danger they may be inviting into their marriage if they are intentionally weaponizing and withholding intimacy to make a point in marriage or out of anger or out of bitterness. So one, yeah, it's not entirely unbiblical. Yes, you look at this and go, this relationship is going to help you with keeping and forbidding these relationships and walking in righteousness, including not letting Satan into your home. But at the same time, it's absolutely ridiculous. And this passage is not placing a burden on women or either spouse to lay down for every whim and desire, to become a slave to the other's desire. This is not giving permission for one spouse to blame the other spouse for their adultery. This is not giving one spouse permission to make demands, like, see, babe, Proverbs 5. I mean, you know, I mean. Jesus never once did what Adam and Eve did, and he wasn't even a married man on earth as a man. Well, God, I wouldn't have sinned if it weren't for them. I wouldn't have gone out and committed adultery if it wasn't for my spouse. That's what makes Jesus Jesus. He did not commit adultery, not because he never met a woman with honey on her lips, but because he himself was wholly and purely devoted to God and to his bride. Proverbs chapter 5 is not a passage that man or woman can use to say, well, I would not have done what I did if they would have done what they were supposed to do. Now, here's what the passage is saying in wisdom. Son, 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 go home to your wife. You got a fountain, go drink there. You have a wife, you go be with her. You go find pleasure in her, son. Find your pleasure in her. This, this is not a command for man to go procreate with woman, for a husband to go make a child with a wife. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I'm not going to get any more explicit than we need to, but those are not ways that you make children. The opposite of a little honey in the adulteress is intoxication, drunkenness to the point of staggering is what the word means, with love for your wife. The word intoxicated literally means to stagger. That, that's not just a call to make babies. It's a call to find the joy and fulfillment and union and covenant expression that you're looking to feel in the adulteress. This is the Song of Solomon. We don't need to read it today, but it's not about procreation. There's a joy, there's an intoxication, an intimacy, a connection which mimics God's intimate spiritual connection to his people, as he said through the prophets when they failed him. So, son, go be with your wife. Go be with your wife. The final answer for Proverbs in regards to wisdom about adultery doesn't end with, no, don't do that. It ends with, go, be with, and enjoy your spouse. And what if you're there today and you're a single person? 
You don't know if you're going to be married. Maybe you have been, you're not married anymore. How do you think about this? How can you even apply Proverbs chapter 5? You might be thinking, I don't have a spouse to go home to, so what do I do with this? Maybe you're, you're young and you're in your youth and you're thinking, well, this sounds good. I've got I to get a wife. Well, careful, don't rush. But if you're single, let me just tell you that you actually have the real thing that sexual Im- intimacy is mimicking. You actually have the realer thing. The relationship between God and Israel is showing as he talks through the book of Ezekiel, as he talked through the book of Hosea, that our relationship is like a, fa- a husband and a wife. And wife, you forsook me, but I came and washed you and redeemed you back. <clears throat> so that marriage itself is really, from the beginning, a display of God's covenant faithfulness, ultimately through Christ for the church. <clears throat> if you're a Christian, you have the real thing. Piper says it like this, God made us powerfully sexual so that we would be able to more deeply know Him. We were given the power to know each other sexually so that we might have some hint of what it would be like to know Christ supremely. One is supposed to look towards the other. So there's no lesser experience for being human if you're single. The wisdom of Proverbs is not just don't, but do. Wisdom does not just say no all the time. It directs you towards paths of righteousness. Now, <clears throat> God created sex and it is good. Genesis, God commanded sexual purity in His people to display His holiness. That's Leviticus. Wisdom says, beware, her lips are like honey. Don't go near. Number two, you'll regret it later. And third, go be with your wife and be intoxicated by her love. But what if it's too late? Are we left in disgrace forever? Shall we be put to death? As Leviticus says, the gospel is that Christ shall be put to death. Go with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Looking at verses 2 through 11. For any of you who are following or see this in your notes, yes, we're treating this as canonical. You'll see a little note there that says earlier manuscripts don't have this recorded. So why go here? One, it's very likely that the story is true. It may even belong in Luke, another place, but it is true. And number two, we'll see it rings true to Jesus' relationship to the law and adultery. John chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. That's Jesus. And all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. We don't need witnesses. We don't need to have a trial here. She was caught in the act. Now in the law, that's Leviticus, what we read, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? I mean, this is the moment. This is a Leviticus moment. Caught in adultery, Leviticus 20.10. If Jesus is going to obey the law, he's going to say, well, let's stone her here and now. I think this... That seemed like a worst-case scenario for your son or for your daughter, right? What can you do? The law says that what the law says, you must be put to death for sinning so gravely against God and against the people of God because that's not what God's like. Maybe she didn't know about Genesis. Maybe she didn't hear about Leviticus. Maybe the, the man didn't know the penalty was death. Maybe she didn't have a father or a mother who's going to give her wisdom and insight about adultery. Maybe there's a father and mother across town who, who are actually saying, we, we tried to tell them, we tried to warn them. More gut-richingly, what if she grew up going to the synagogue and she grew up with a mom who, who, who taught her and he had a dad who taught him Proverbs chapter 5. And they had a father and they had a mother who tried their best, but this man and this woman sinned anyway. Is that you? 
Is that us that we've sinned against God? I think it is. Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 5, just a few verses before we read earlier, about cutting out your eyes and your hands. Jesus said first about adultery, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, by that standard, we are all in grave danger. Committed adultery with her in his heart. It's impossible, Jesus. That, I, mean, I mean, no thoughts, no thinking, no, no imagination, no. Continue reading in John 8. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a th- uh, throw a stone at her. And once more he bit down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, what did Jesus just do? There's theology. There's Genesis about the creation of man and woman and husband and wife and marriage. There's the the law that says you should be put to death. And there's wisdom that should have guarded you from ever going down that path to begin with. And then Jesus is saying, and and then there's me, the Son of God, God in the flesh, and I don't condemn you. That's what he says in John 3, 17 about himself. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Think about the words from Leviticus. Those who commit adultery, they shall be put to death. The scribes and the Pharisees were right. Jesus did not say, well, let's forget the law. Let's just discard the law. That, that, That doesn't matter. No, Jesus died to fulfill the law. He died to pay the price for our sexual unfaithfulness. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He fulfills them in living in a holiness that we could never live. He fulfills them in paying a death that we deserved. Here is something that we cannot, that we cannot even grasp, that we must think about and thank God for. Not only did Jesus never commit adultery with his body, he never thought about it. I just think this is inconceivable in our hypersexualized world today. He didn't even think about it. He never lusted after a woman in his, in his heart. And then he went to death. When Jesus went to the cross, it was God sending him to the cross to die in the place for that young man who did not listen to the wisdom of his father. He went to the cross to die for that young woman who didn't listen to the law. And for that matter, Jesus went to the cross and he died for the forbidden woman who had honey on her lips to attract so many other men. He went to the cross for the adulterer who would realize his or her ways, and by grace come to God confessing their sin and trust that Christ was put to death in their place, that God forgives them in Jesus Christ. In God's grace, he looks at us and says, his son shall be put to death rather than us for all of our sin, for our lying, for our dishonesty, for our greed and selfishness. And Jesus rose from the dead, finally fully paying for the sin of those who trust in him so that he can give a new eternal life to those who believe in him. After believing in Jesus Christ, having your sin forgiven, we too are to follow in the way that God intended for Israel, but they couldn't live up to. Pursue righteousness. Pursue holiness as a display to the nations and the peoples around us to likewise extend forgiveness to someone who's gone wayward toward us. 
to come and seek forgiveness of someone that we may have sinned against. Now Jesus is raised from the dead to new life. We are too to raise to new life, now seeking to flee from sin and live as instruments of righteousness forever. My friends, if you've fallen into any kind of sin, today come to Christ. He says, I do not continue, condemn you, but has died on the cross for you and calls you now under the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit to go and sin no more. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You, if you're trusting in Christ today, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God has created sex, and it is very good. God commanded sexual purity in His people, the Old Testament and the New, to display His holiness. Wisdom says, beware, her lips are like honey. Don't go near now, you'll regret it later. And be with your wife. And thank God that Jesus Christ has died for our sin. That He is raised from the grave to give us eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, which tells us about yourself, teaches us theology, it gives us the law, how to live, it gives us wisdom for how to obey the law. But Father, we give you thanks and praise that we we have sinned, sinned in mind and heart and body, and you sent Christ to die the death that we deserve. So, Father, since our bodies have been bought, since we were purchased and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, help us now to go and glorify you in our bodies. Help us to make our lives a living sacrifice of worship to you, telling our spouses and our children and the world what you are like, the faithful, promise-keeping covenant husband. Father, help us live in accordance with your will, thanking you for your grace by walking in your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.